Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today, we're going to have, we're going to go back in time. Uh, you know, I think it's so inspiring for, to learn about history and to see how far we've come, because when we know how far we've come, we know how far we will go. And it, it's, it's, uh, my, my saying is always stay alive till the next miracle happens. That's what happens in technology. And we're going to go back in time um, to the first kidney transplant ever performed in this country. And we're going to be speaking to Edmund Lawler. He is a, a journalist teacher at St. Paul University. And uh, he wrote this amazing book that you can get on Amazon, How a Groundbreaking Surgery Helps Shape the Future of Kidney Transplantation. So welcome to the show, Edmund. Thank you, Laurie. It's a pleasure to be on the program. So, you know, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, it, it was family lore. Uh, Richard Lawler was my great uncle. He was my grandfather's older brother. And I grew up knowing about this. Uh, I was never terribly interested in medicine, but it's just something we kind of grew up with. Um, I saved a few news clippings along the way. And uh, in fact, my dad, who was the uh, head of a hospital in Chicago, uh, not a doctor himself, uh, uh, more uh, trained in, in operations and administration, he saved a few news clips for me as well. And he sort of encouraged me. He said, you ought to look into this. This might make a good story. It might make a good book. And I said, oh, Dad, I just don't think I'm, I'm qualified to write about something like this. But uh, uh, what, what kind of got me off the dime was in 2012 when uh, Dr. Joseph Murray died. He's the one who's generally credited with the first successful kidney transplant in the world. That was in um, 1954. But in reading the obituary, there was really no mention of my great uncle's surgery. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, it's unfortunate this was lost to history. So I thought maybe it's time for me to start taking a look at this and kind of resurrect this story. It took me a few more years to, to finally get at it. I really didn't start writing it until about uh, 2019 and then wrapped it up fairly quickly. Um, it took me uh, about uh, two years to finally get it all pulled together. So, you know, when did this kidney transplant take place? The kidney transplant took place on June 17, 1950, so that was about um, four years prior to Dr. Murray's surgery in Boston in 1954. And you know, what were the, you know, what was the, you know, who was the recipient, and do you know any about the circumstances surrounding why they needed a transplant? Yeah, the, the patient was a 44-year-old woman. Her name was Ruth Tucker. And um, she was suffering from polycystic kidney disease, which is, of course, a very uh, dreadful illness because it causes the, the kidney to fill with, um, with cysts, and she was in a, in a great deal of pain. She had gone up to the Mayo Clinic up in Minnesota, she and her husband, and uh, this would have been probably late 1949 or so, and um, you know, she was looking for some sort of you know, some sort of relief to this, some sort of escape from the misery of, uh, of this polycystic kidney disease. And um, the doctors up there um, 
just said there really isn't anything we can do. They weren't being callous. I think they were being honest. Uh, right. There really was no uh, dialysis, kidney dialysis available in the Midwest in 1949 or 50. There was, it was, it was being introduced in the Boston area uh, mm-hmm. at about that time. There was really no, uh, it was not an option in um, 1949, 1950. So where did the kidney come from that was transplanted or how did they do the match? Yeah, that was an interesting story. Um, you know, obviously there were no organ procurement organizations back in those days. There was really no kidney infrastructure because they were, uh, Dr. Lawler and his team were, you know, true pioneers. They were out there in the wilderness. Um, they had this patient. They had um, Mrs. Ruth Tucker, and she was admitted to the hospital actually about six weeks before the actual surgery. So they began a rather desperate search for a kidney. Dr. Lawler even called some of the area jails and prisons looking for a potential live prisoner, of course. Well, who head of his might time. Possibly, <laughs> yeah, right. Might possibly donate. The, the wardens were not crazy about the idea. They said, we're, we're not going to uh, allow one of our prisoners to go to your hospital because that presents an escape risk. Um, how about you bring your patient to our facility Dr. Lawler thought, no, that's not a good idea either because uh, Mrs. Tucker is under enough stress at the moment and she doesn't need to be temporarily admitted to a, an area prison or jail. Uh, he also called the coroner's office in Chicago. He called uh, some of the area hospitals in search of a potential kidney donor. And oddly enough, he found it in his very own hospital. The hospital was uh, called Little Company of Mary Hospital. Um, there's a sister hospital out in uh, Torrance, California, mm-hmm. that I believe goes by the same name. Yes, that's where my, I believe my husband was born. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Small uh, world. Yeah, small, small world, absolutely. So this was um, a hospital in suburban Chicago, just outside the, the Chicago border, the southwest side, maybe about 12 miles southwest of the Chicago Loop. And it... Um, about 587 beds, so sort of mid-sized, but a community hospital and a Catholic hospital. And this is where it, it took place, which seems like an unlikely place for um, such a remarkable medical breakthrough. Well, uh, so and, doc- and did he, like, match blood type, or do you have any of that information? Did he yeah, just... Yeah, th- there, uh, there was a blood type match between the recipient, uh, Mrs. Tucker, and the donor who... who wanted to remain anonymous, but she was a 49-year-old woman. Um, they did have a, a blood uh, type match, uh, tissue typing, which, of course, was still a bit off in the future. Uh, there was really no way to do that. They were sort of in the early development stages of all of that. So, And the patient was in the hospital. She was dying of liver disease. She had uh, cirrhosis of the liver, which would seem to make her an unlikely candidate for an organ transplant, but they determined that the uh, the kidney would be in good enough shape for a transplant. I think Dr. Lawler said it's not an ideal donor, but at this point, we've been waiting six weeks. We've tried everything. Um, I, I think the moment has arrived for us to do this. So he got word from this uh, female patient's doctor on June 16th, which would have been a Friday. And Dr. Lawler alerted uh, his team, which I guess would be the world's first transplant team, told everybody to uh, stick close to the phone, don't go away, because you could be called in over the weekend to uh, create medical history. Wow. 
And, you know, uh, it's obvious, but, you know, dialysis wasn't an option back then for for chronic kidney failure. You just that didn't happen till the mid 60s uh, when the Scribner shunt was created. So, um, yeah, she uh, so so how long did the surgery take? And and, you know, what happened after surgery? The surgery took all of 45 minutes. As you know, today, uh, <laughs> kidney transplants are more three to four hours. Oh, wow. Uh, the reason they did it so quickly was because they didn't have uh, ways to perfuse a kidney. So uh, uh, an internal organ taken out of the body uh, would begin losing its fluids and would losing its viability. So they have been practicing on um, deceased patients awaiting autopsies in the hospital. And they were... Uh, they were always timing it against the clock, and they knew they had to do it in about 45 minutes. They'd also been practicing on dogs uh, oh. at, a, at another hospital, <laughs> um, which Sorry. is not going to make the anti-vivisectionists very happy, but, um, you know, such as, uh, you know, medical experimentation. Um, so they, they, they were getting pretty good in terms of the timing and the surgical technique. So the surgery began about 11.30 a.m. after they excised the kidney from the, the 49-year-old donor. And then the uh, one of the surgeons, uh, Dr. West, who um, there's kind of a Southern California angle to him, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, he marched the kidney into the other operating suite. He put it in a, uh, a pan of saline and heparin, which is an anticoagulant, passed it through the door, uh, the surgery had already begun on Mrs. Tucker, and they took about uh, 45 minutes to do it. So at about 12.15 p.m. that day, uh, Dr. Lawler said there was this, this sense of elation that kind of went around the, um, the operating suite. Uh, the kidney was, uh, it, it sort of turned uh, pink, a, a very lively, encouraging color. Uh, it began to produce urine uh, fairly quickly. and. Um, they wanted to keep, an odd thing is they wanted to keep this operation away from the press. They wanted to keep it quiet because they weren't sure how this was going to turn out. It was right. going to be, uh, have a fatal outcome fairly quickly. Um, but the, the word of the operation leaked within about a day or so. Uh, one of Mrs. Tucker's nephews tipped off one of the newspapers and um, the hospital was you know, a little frightened about what was going to take place. Uh, Dr. Lawler did allow one photographer to come into the hospital and take a photo of him. Uh, Mrs. Tucker's husband, Howard, who was a locomotive engineer out of Chicago. And that was uh, really the, uh, the only contact they had with the press. The press was, uh, uh, you know, hell bent on, on getting this story. This was such a, a, a unique story. Right. Uh, but Dr. Lawler was concerned about the, the risk of infection, which is, you know, certainly a legitimate concern. And then uh, within a couple of days, the word started getting around, and it became a fairly big story at the time. The, the wire services picked up on it, some of the, the major newspapers. Um, but as the years went on, especially when Dr. Murray's surgery came along in 1954, it did become sort of lost to history. That It, it sort of got overlooked. And then, of course, uh, transplant surgery became... Uh, more commonplace. It, it, it wasn't kind of the, the big moment it was in 1950 with Dr. Lawler's surgery. Well, and was there any medications back then um, that they gave her? They just stuck the kidney in and 
said a Hail Mary and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Catholic <laughs> hospital, I suppose, that's how you do it. Um, there were no uh, immunosuppressant drugs at that point. There were some early experiments with uh, whole body radiation, which obviously would create its own uh, unfortunate scenario. <laughs> exactly. But the, um, you know, some of the anti-rejection uh, drugs uh, were not available at that time. Uh, they began working with radiation. They began working with steroids. It really was, as you know, it really wasn't until the 1980s when they developed cyclosporine that became sort of the go-to anti-rejection yep. drug at the time. Well, yeah, I was on prednisone and imuram with prior transplants before cyclosporine, and that was no fun. Um, yeah, I know that's, was, that's not very was, pleasant, yeah. It's not very pleasant. And, I, um, and so how, how long did she survive after the transplant? Well, she lived another five years, uh, amazingly. What they did is after about two months, on the 65th day, she had notified she, she was released from the hospital by the way 29 days later and she though the press was all outside the hospital and she gave everyone a nice wave but she really didn't have any comment for the press about a month after that so this was about two months uh post surgery she reported a uh, a slight decline in her urine output of course kidney produces urine mm -hmm. um they brought her back into the hospital they reopened the incision and um they noticed there was a stricture and a small infection, and they wiped away the pus, and they examined the kidney very carefully, and the kidney appeared alive and well. It was producing urine. About eight months after that, so this would then be 10 months after the transplant surgery, this would be about April of 1951, she again reported some decline in her urinary output. They brought her back in, reopened the uh, a transplant incision, wow. and uh, they discovered that the kidney was alive, but it was it was shrunken. Some of the tissues were alive, and it was no longer producing urine at that point. So they sewed Mrs. Tucker up, uh, probably said another Hail Mary, and <laughs> she lived for another four years. What they suspect happened was that the transplanted kidney served as sort of a, a dialysis. It, it sort of served as a bridge to let her other, her right kidney, sort of recover. Both of the kidneys were, you know, the kidney disease is typically bilateral. Um, and both of the kidneys were badly diseased, but the uh, right kidney was probably not in, in renal failure. It was probably close. It may have been about the 15% range. But what Dr. Lawler and his team suspected was that... Uh, the surviving kidney, the, the native kidney, was able to uh, uh, carry Mrs. Tucker on for the next four years. She died in uh, April of 1955 of heart disease. It was not kidney disease. Uh, she believed she had contracted pneumonia, um, and uh, sort of the last couple months of her life were not terribly pleasant. But prior to that, she was traveling. She was... Uh, you know, doing housework at home. She was visiting with relatives. Uh, she would go down to southern Indiana to see uh, friends and relatives down there. So she lived a fairly normal life for uh, for nearly five years after this groundbreaking surgery. Wow. And, you know, I don't know back then, but did they use the, the test they use today, like creatinine? Um, was that available yeah, they, back then? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they did use that, and um, her creatinine levels were low. And uh, I know that's kind of a 
kind of a red flag that gets too high, it would suggest that the kidney is not operating properly. But uh, uh, both her uh, urinary output and the creatinine levels were uh, were fairly normal. So there were no red flags raised by that. So, so the assumption was that the the kidney worked fairly well for, for several months. Of course, eventually, because they didn't have immunosuppressant drugs, uh, the, uh, the body's immune system finally turned on this uh, foreign organ and um, then kind of, kind of knocked it out. But she was able to sustain herself on the, the kidney, the right kidney, sort of her, her native kidney. Well, and, you know, when you, you learn about polycystic kidney disease and just the whole idea of how it just invades the body and, you know, grows these cysts and just takes things out. I mean, it can, um, you know, hit any part of your body, but it often hits people's kidneys and it's genetic. So um, it's it's definitely um, one of the things I've learned, too, with people who have polycystic kidney disease um, don't offer, suffer from such severe anemia, like people who have other kidney failure, and that may have helped her have a little more energy. <laughs> right. Yeah, she did quite well. Um, Dr. Lawler, on the other hand, did not do quite well. He was um, criticized, and his, his operation was denounced by a number of doctors. Uh, the American Urological Association, of which he was a member, uh, condemned the operation, just saying that uh, you're getting too far ahead of the science, uh, that you should be waiting for tissue type matching. You should be waiting for immunosuppressant drugs to be fully developed. And oddly enough, he was also criticized by uh, Catholic clergy, even though it was done at a Catholic hospital and approved by the nun who, who headed the hospital. And, and uh, both Dr. Lawler and his partners, uh, Dr. Uh, James West and Dr. Raymond Murphy, they were practicing Catholics as well. But I, I, I think it struck a lot of people, including some clergy, as a bit unnatural, that it, uh, it, it seemed almost macabre or bizarre in a way that they would take a, uh, an organ from a deceased body, which uh, you know, in, in many religious circles that's considered sacred, and uh, uh, you know, make it come alive again in, in another human being. So I, I don't think the world was quite ready for this. Yeah, this ignorance, ignorance um, and, you know, really criticizing visionaries. Yeah, that's true. Um, yes. I, I think that that's the risk of pioneers. You know, they're yes. the ones with the arrows on their back. You know what? It's um, in my own small way, I totally relate to that because I have like some big ideas and I would say things and people are like, oh, you could just see them. And then 20 years later, they're doing it. You know, <laughs> right. and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, uh, wait. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it's it's of course, it's their idea and nobody else ever came up with it. Um, but you know, it is. It's really sad that we should applaud innovators. And, it. you know, if the if the patient is willing to take the risk, which this young woman was, and, you know, there was a deceased donor. I mean, take don't take your organs to heaven. Heaven knows we need them here, right? Uh, exactly, and, yeah. and, you know, now the Catholic Church and all religions 100% support kidney donation. And so... Uh, <laughs> I imagine Dr. Lawler did not perform any other transplants after that. He did not. That was it. I mean, he caught a, a, a lot of blowback from the medical community and the religious community. And he said for uh, me and my team to do another transplant operation at this point would be like waving a red flag in front of a bull. So he was essentially one and done. Um, nevertheless, toward the end of his career, he was, uh, I think the world came to recognize in kind of a quiet way, that that what he did was uh, was was breakthrough. You know, medicine kind of builds upon itself through right. experimentation and failure. 
Uh, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize in 1970. He didn't win, but I, I think nomination is its own reward. Uh, in uh, 1974, there was a, a symposium in his honor at uh, Little Company of Mary Hospital. Uh, some of the leading transplant surgeons from around the Midwest came to, to honor him. Um, in 2014, uh, Becker's Hospital Review named the, uh, the nine top uh, medical pioneers of the past century and included Dr. Lawler in the list. So I, I think it ended on a happier note happier. for somebody who experienced ostracism. And, and he said, you know, there were, there were many doctors who wouldn't even talk to him for fear that he would contaminate them. Oh my God! Uh, it sounds like you know. Let's let's burn them at the stake, right? Um, uh, <laughs> right. Well, and you know what's so crazy about it is that um, I'm sure there were some back room conversations that, if you were a fly on the wall, would have heard people like, "What in the heck did we do? We <laughs> right. yeah. really messed up. We could have been the ground." breaking hospital system or medical practice or, you know, however you want to frame it, that could have really evolved because we had a successful transplant. And yeah, we they did, but, but yeah, they, they were petty and decided to eat their own, which is a lesson yeah. for everybody. You know, right. just because somebody does something you didn't do doesn't mean you can't support their effort. Uh, all boats rise to the top, right? <laughs> Right. And I think another point is uh, Little Company of Mary Hospital was primarily known as the baby hospital. Maybe, maybe the one out in L.A. is sort of the same reputation, but right. uh, it, it wasn't considered, uh, you know, a, a major research institution as uh, the Brigham in uh, Boston, where the, the Murray surgery right. took place with the Herrick twins. Uh, They're affiliated, of course, with Harvard, one of the preeminent uh, medical schools in the world. So it, it just seemed a little bit odd that uh, something, this breakthrough, would be taking place at a Catholic community hospital. But sometimes innovation takes place in unusual places. Right. And, you know, uh, it's always said is that my husband always says this. He's always says, you know, the people who write the history are the people who won. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, yeah. And and so you don't always know the whole little nuance of the story. Um, Right. um, You know, uh, let's wrap up and talk a little bit about uh, what historical policy development in transplantation followed all of this. Is it really started the debate, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to call the book initially The Spark, uh, because what he did in 1950 sort of sparked a round of experimentation and innovation and eventually uh, leading to some of the more successful transplants of the 1960s. There was a renowned French physician who uh, was essentially the first transplant surgeon in uh, Paris, René Cousse. And when he read Dr. Lawler's report in the Journal of the American Medical Association about five months after the surgery, he said, uh, he said, this is extraordinary. He said, Dr. Lawler has given us and uh, other doctors interested in transplant surgery uh, the opening, the moment, kind of the spark by which to uh, reignite some of the transplant efforts that had been taking place right after World War II, but they've been daunted, of course, by the uh, rejection syndrome. So I think that was the big moment, that it got uh, the transplant surgeons in Boston and Paris kind of off the dime. Right. Uh, the surgery demonstrated that the patient would not go into uh, anaphylactic shock. 
Um, I should point out the surgery was done intra-abdominally, which, of course, right. is the way it, it's always been done since 1950. There were some early experiments where uh, some of the kidneys were transplanted externally, either on elbows or, or knees, uh, or, or upper thighs, I should say. And, of course, that's not practical. It right. uh, has, you know, obviously some cosmetic issues as well. So I, I think what it did is it demonstrated that if you have the right surgical technique, uh, which they did. They, they anastomosed or they, they connected all the vessels properly. Um, that if you can do that, but you still needed to overcome the immunological barriers, which were, as you know, being developed about that point. So I, I think it really did spark uh, a fresh new round that, that led to the, the ultimate solution of uh, Organ transplants. Well, there. Well, and I've heard the term. You know, they wear the heart on their sleeve. I never really thought of kidney. Um, that's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You know, I'm like, and you know, when I just kind of cringe when you said, "Oh, well, we opened her up to, every time she had a problem." I'm like, "Oh my goodness." Yeah, you um, would. Yeah. It was like, oh god, what you a know warrior! What, that is like, what right? a warrior! I mean, you know, what a brave woman! I mean, you know, yeah. we did, they didn't even have the great pain meds back then either. You know, like they got some. Sure, man, yeah. They had that pain pain what is it called the the machine that you know really helps but what a brave yeah. person you know i think it's absolutely amazing that you you know heard this story referred to folklore went and researched it and then wrote this amazing story for you know everyone to there's a lot of lessons here <laughs> um there's a lot of lessons in how people treat each other how people treat visionaries and, you know, my hat's off to Dr. Lawler uh, because, you know, if he sparked the transplant uh, revelation of, you know, throughout the world and throughout the U.S., then he's really responsible for saving millions and millions of lives. Yeah, well, thank you, Laurie. I'm sure he's uh, – Richard Lawler passed about uh, 40 years ago, but I, I think he would be delighted to hear that sort of sentiment expressed uh, long after his death. You know, it's, it's, I think we just need to give the crazy, the crazy engineer and the crazy visionaries a little bit more respect. Uh, yeah. um, you have to be a little crazy. And, you know, my, my favorite group of people, I have to say, are people who are innovators and visionaries. I, I That would be, if I could be among one group of people, that would be the group. Because... Yeah, if you're... If you're not taking the risk, you're not going to advance the science. And and it's for anything. I mean, um, you know, anything you choose to do, you know, you decide to cook or you decide to paint. Um, you want to be the pe you you want to be watching the people who are developing new techniques and creating new things because that's what um, causes continuous improvement. And we learn from things and we get better and. Uh, it's just, just amazing. Like, just it's not that long ago, the fifties. <laughs> um, you know, it really isn't. And uh, look right. at how far we've come with transplantation, to you know, biomarkers, all kinds of testing. To you know, it's it's basically transplant is the preferred treatment option for kidney disease or kidney failure. So. Um, well, with that, well, everybody can go to Amazon.com and you can check out Edmund Lawler's book, How a Groundbreaking Surgery Helped Shape the Future of Kidney Transplantation. Uh, you definitely, you're obviously a journalist. It's very well written. And, you know, I think uh, especially for medical students and people interested in the history of 
you know, just how medicine works, um, you know, pick up this book and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And, and uh, you know, go invent the next best technology for us. Absolutely. Well, Lori, thank you so much. I enjoyed being a guest on your show today. Yes, and have um, and I can't wait to see what you write next. <laughs> yeah, I've got to figure that out next. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.